0: Welcome to the New Models Podcast. In this episode, Carly and myself join our friends Nora Kahn and Joel Kennan while visiting them in Switzerland during their time at the Lebec Residence d'Artiste. The purpose of Nora and Joel's stay is project-oriented with two new books and a site-specific installation in the works, respectively. Amid mountains and glacial lakes with an improvised assortment of recording devices and a very fast internet connection, we talked with Nora and Joel about time at scales both deep and instant, past and future, North Stars, plural, climate futures and critical frameworks for Web3 creative production, rethinking the human in relation to accelerating AI. And how to recognize the truly experimental in a world increasingly bound by quote unquote aligned incentives i'm little internet joined by my co-host carly busta dan unfortunately is caught up in his american escape but we're happy to be joined again by my friend from second grade really writer and critic nora khan and their partner artist and writer joel kennan let's get into it
1: So today we're recording in Switzerland, actually, as we are at the Lebec Residency, thanks to Nora Khan and her partner, Joel Kennan. And we uh, have been thinking a lot the last few days about, I don't know, new media, time, what models we may be using to um, survive the coming uh, digital moment.
0: A bias towards models, <laughs> scopes of both space and time. I also want to say we do have a very improvised recording setup here. Yeah, so we probably sound a little different. That's right. We're also staying in cubes <laughs> yeah, true. by a lake and and these mountains. <laughs> and depending on the weather, it's either like a stormy ocean with an endless horizon, or it's a placid lake with um, huge, massive, massive, rock massive that mountains that up to um, the sky. Yes,
1: yeah, it's really quite an, an incredible it's
0: landscape. A, a totally dynamic, ever changing environment where the only thing that stays stable is the cube
1: <laughs> <laughs> but they're made of concrete so as joel may tell us later uh, yes that stability <laughs> also has a time lock on it so <laughs> nora and joel could you briefly introduce yourselves sure
2: Yeah, the last time I was on New Models was at the beginning of the pandemic on a session called Remote Learning. That's when we went online to teach. And at the time, I was finishing my third year of teaching at RISD and Digital Plus Media. And at the time, I was thinking about writing a couple of books, which I wrote the first of here. That book is on AI art and art made through AI and about AI and the stakes for criticism. And so I wanted a book that was a polemic about the space and how we learn from artists using algorithms to navigate the visual algorithmically driven landscape that we are speaking in and looking at every minute of every day. And so also while I was here, because it's a research residency focused on interdisciplinarity, I also have a book coming out next year through Strange Attractor Press, which is like, how do we think across fields? How do you move between science and art and poetics and engineering to think about the mad time that we're in? Maybe we can get
1: a glimpse of what that book is about as part of this conversation. And also as we consider Joel's work, Joel is, well, Joel, could you introduce yourself?
3: Yeah, hi. Wonderful to be here. I'm an artist, writer, editor. My work is mostly about Earth, time, the interaction between the human and the physical environment. So I've been making a series of land interventions for the last three years. And here I've been working on a 26,000-year clock basically. (laughs) So the project is North Stars. It's a 26,000 year clock that uses a nice boulder, silicone carbide technical ceramic rod, and seven glazed cylinders that correspond to seven of the current and future North Stars that the Earth will have throughout this cycle. The current North Star is Polaris, and the cycle itself is called the precession of the axis. It happens because of the gravitational pull of the moon and the sun, causes a wobble in the Earth's axis as it turns. And then porcelain was used because it's one of the can be one of the hardest ceramics. So when maximized for mullite three crystal production within the ceramic. So you
1: thought that cryptocurrency is futuristic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Will last longer, the blockchain or the twenty six thousand year clock?
2: <laughs> Healthy competition. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: nice. It's been a lot of material
3: science research. Yeah. Actually, the most challenging part of this project was devising the color of each of the stars, because it, it depends on the age of the star, the makeup of the star, distance, position in the sky, all these things. I've started to use technical ceramics, or what they're called, and they're like uh, sintered um, silicone carbide. This or, is very sick.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was this is very sick. It's true. This. We actually yeah. have to touch some of this. It's a, it's and it was a beautiful really cool. material. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah, so it's generally this material that's used for like rocket engines, armor plating, industrial furnaces. My work also has to do with gesturing towards astrometric futures, like thinking about like how we as this earthbound species that is beginning to enter into a new relationship with outer space, you know, going from the scientific to a military consideration of it to now a commercial consideration of it. Yeah, that kind of shift has been like in the back of my mind for a long time and so generally there's always some sort of relationship to outer space. And, and with this project it tends to come through the material, let alone the North Star. <laughs> so
1: I think Joel, you're literally the astronaut in the astronaut meme. Maybe
0: <laughs> <laughs> which one? The one holding the gun, the one or the-, well, <laughs> <laughs>
1: the one? Yes, the one that's like at the furthest extreme, But like thinking on the largest scope. We like to think about blockchain being something that will outlast, you know, any other kind of network failure. Then you're like, what about when Earth is in a totally different state? So kind of a nice scale to have in mind as we're talking about what future models. Might look like or experimental models.
3: Nora and I have interesting conversations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. I, mean, I want to
1: have both of you speaking with us today. So maybe we can go back and forth between deep time, present time, close future, far future. I mean, Nora, one great thing you do in your work is you very seamlessly go between human, material, earthbound experience to. Something that's technical, seemingly non human, mathematical. So maybe we can be that scanner a bit in this conversation as well.
0: I have a really edgy question for Joel. Okay. Because this is something that's actually bothered me a bit when thinking about it. I mean, in terms of climate change activism and the idea of anthropogenic climate change, I mean, when you start to actually get out to these really big time scales, you realize the Earth is naturally in a glacial period. The hothouse Earth is uh, somewhat rare. That drastic climate changes happen naturally over time. And I want to know why that jumping of scale and saying, well, these things fluctuate uh, over time anyways drastically. The magnetic pole is going to change in 10,000 years. Why doesn't that uh, diminish the importance or urgency of addressing anthropogenic climate change?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think like I came across a tweet from somebody that I don't recall, but they basically said we should not talk about climate change, but we should talk about how we are creating an environment that is hostile to us mm-hmm. um, and so it's good to think about the hyper object of the earth but when dealing with mortal concerns of like creating environments that are actively harmful to our existence it's better to think about it on that scale like currently we are in an interglacial period the earth tends to be like over the long term it's a bit of a, an ice block like geologically speaking. so one of the things that came up when doing this project was what will this site be in 2016 26- years, so we're like on the edge of Lake Geneva, which is actually like the extent of the Rhone Glacier during glacial periods. So, according to the Milankovitch cycles, there would be a glacier sitting over this art piece in twenty six thousand years, uh, crushing it into oblivion. But the current models suggest that because of anthropogenic climate change we've actually pushed back the next glacial period, which yeah, I mean it's hard to take an emotional frame of that statement because it is so far into the future that it's like, how do we even relate to that? At the same time, when you have a generally warming earth more of it's going to turn to deserts you're going to have a lot of people fleeing the inability to grow food where they used to grow food. It's more about creating instability in a system that we've come to rely on and develop Really complex systems with, right? Mm -hmm. So,
0: and perhaps I mean the time during which we've been able to affect the climate—that's on geological timescales—is actually pretty rapid. Yeah. it takes a long time for systems to stabilize. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, mm-hmm. and um, the, you know,
3: the sixth extinction, like the right, giant right. mass extinction that we as a species have caused, and right. like what that'll actually do to like a pool of genetic variability. Mm-hmm. Like we've massively narrowed our options in mm-hmm. a sense of like who we can become because we do take in others' DNA, like right. you know, so.
0: Nora, I mean, when you shared some of your writing yesterday, I really got this feeling of conflict between taking a non-human scale or a uh, scientific view and understanding of the human experience. And that is your primary mode of looking and thinking about your life and the interactions you have with other people versus a very human, perhaps, as you said, ineffable or uncomputable frame or understanding of human life and uh, our interactions with others and what what is living a good life or a responsible one.
1: I mean, I have a connection. Yeah, it, sure. I, feel like. I wanted to pull specifically something that you said yesterday, how escape is not an option. This future that is defined by algorithmic systems, increasingly by machine learning. This is what's defining capital. It is going to define our existence. But how do we coexist with this, right? And similarly with anthropogenic climate change is something that hopefully we can reduce the degree to which we're. causing the climate to change very rapidly, but we also have to learn to coexist with it, right? It's a coexistence question. Mm -hmm. So what do you learn from each other in your practice? Like Nora, you think a lot about digital systems, the future in maybe a hundred year scope. Mm -hmm. Joel, you think about earth systems in maybe like a hundred thousand year scope or ten thousand year scope. What have you learned from each other's practices Mm -hmm. in in thinking about ideas of coexistence and the inevitable and
2: Yeah I think I can triangulate all Three <laughs> sets of questions, actually, because something that really strikes me with your work are the conversations about who would be around or what would be around to see the work or consider it in 26,000 years. I think the like thought exercise of what mushrooms or fungi? I'm not <laughs> sure what kind of organic material, or it's just going to be ice, the ice looking at your sculpture out there, <laughs> right? Um, or, you know, if the advances that were promised to us by science fiction pan out as desired maybe some version of us will be around to see your work then and so the thought exercise there is in the next five ten fifty years like what kind of art is going to make being in an algorithmic landscape meaningful Mm -hmm. and for me a lot of that is toggling Mm -hmm. back and forth between this space of abstraction I spent so much time in talking about AI the future and the future to come and many times in those rooms there is a kind of shoulders up, cut off from the day-to-day, mm-hmm. like one's day-to-day lived material experience, which is involved with compromise and also toggling between many different spaces and negotiating between them. The space of like ideology, theory, critique, big technological futures, often pure abstraction, and we're trading in you know, models, models right. of the future that we see ourselves aligned with. But whereas in the present, we're negotiating between like hundreds of models a day that are either being given to us or other people's mental models or our own models of ourselves, and they're all clashing and melding and disturbing whatever model we may have. And so if we are in a algorithmic landscape and we can't differentiate between images and writing and art that is made by a machine or made by a person, what will make it meaningful, what's made it meaningful right. up until this point? How do we acknowledge our deep hybridity with systems that we may or may not have signed up to be, you know, instantiated in, and think about how we are negotiating between our day-to-day lived experience and these models that we're in and around. So I think part of thinking about experimentation or thinking about an artistic practice or thinking about a writing practice is even in like a destroyed future, like ecologically, we're still going to have to make the days meaningful. Right, yeah. Actually the question of art may seem really irrelevant, but to me it's actually what would sustain us through increasing and impending crisis. So right at this moment, being in these online spaces like what is the kind of thinking that gives us meaning or feels meaningful and that's why it all comes back to criticism. Yeah.
3: I mean so I guess like off of off of that like kind of two things like the idea of disrupting models we're always interested in finding disruption or ways to short circuit or go around or extend And I I think my fascination with like deep time came as a reaction to this idea of like a persistent present that's always bearing down on us Mm -hmm. led by the technological ability to have that persistent presence to have a constant digital mirror Mm -hmm. in a way that distracts us from longer processes, which do have an impact, not to say that I'm like anti technological or anything, but I just think our Technological focus is really about accessing deep time as well. Mm. So, like places like Future Foundation or
1: what is Future Foundation?
3: My impression of it is it came out of like the Kurzweilian Singularity movement, and it was this collection of computer engineers and future technologists working to create. Consciousness that can last forever, mm-hmm. basically, <laughs> and like the technology to make that happen. So, yeah, I, I would break tech up into like there's the focus on like the cultural aspect of technology and like how it affects who we are and how we develop this relationship with it, which is kind of like neurosphere And then I've always been interested in how we use tech aspirationally to counteract the problem of the ever-present moment. Mm-hmm. Like so I feel like it has this weird dissonance built into it, it at once makes us focus. On, like, the forever now, but the tech was created to be able to go beyond that mm-hmm. in the first mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. Materially, it has consequences because, right. like, our you know, we're more wasteful when we don't think about the next day and that that's also real yeah and so it's a lot of it has to do with just our economic systems are certainly in conflict with like yeah. the longer vision of things
0: I mean I imagine I don't know like if you're a day trader a crypto or something like your time is spent like watching lines <laughs> like change in real time like mm-hmm. seconds matter minutes matter I mean it's interesting to think about I don't know early farmers or something whose concept of time was probably always thinking about months or seasons, what uh, things affect the harvest for moons down the road? You know, if you just think of your attentional bandwidth as finite and what timescale your resources go to, I mean, you can imagine people probably just naturally thought on much longer timescales than we uh, oh, right. do right now. You mean
1: like instead of instantaneous, how many likes did I get in the last five minutes? They're thinking like the rain in March is going to affect
0: the crop right. in just, July. Just in terms, like, like right, your right, right, no- baseline calibration. Yeah. to time and how totally. you, how much of your finite attentional bandwidth you spend thinking on what time scale. And now we're thinking constantly about minutes. Uh, right. And also
3: just think about, like, say you're a farmer and you want to have some apple trees. So before we got really good at splicing and creating fast-growing like, species, it would take like 60 years for right. an apple tree to mature and be useful. Yeah. So you're planning for the next generation. You're not planning for yourself. And We always, as humans, will engage with complex systems. We'll make them up for ourselves. I mean, that's what gaming is. It's like you make up complex systems so you can engage with it, and like (laughs) it's not a bad thing. It's just like that's what it is. So if what's put in front of us as a complex system to engage with doesn't have materially beneficial long-term goals, like that's probably not a useful system to engage with. Right. And I think like. We just generally don't think what is what I'm spending my time on today going to mean and hundred
1: years. I wonder, can I ping pong this back to you then, Nora? So we're recording in the last hour or two of an auction that you had something to do with, an NFT auction of Speaking all things. Speaking
0: of thinking about minutes, yeah, thinking uh, thinking about minutes. I, we're
1: watching the clock, but so art in the crypto space, which has predominantly been these things we call non-fungible tokens. Also fungi, fungible transformation, <laughs> somewhere in <laughs> there, there's a joke, I haven't connected it yet. But. Is
3: it non-fungible Tolkien? Oh.
1: oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> anyway, the question I was going to ask, on what timescale do you think the average person who is making or engaging with NFTs, let's just limit it to that for the time being, what timescale do you think they are thinking? So probably not the 60-year Apple tree timescale. Probably not the 27,000. What is it? Malenkovich. That's 100,000. Oh, that's 100,000. Okay, so Weird, not the weird Earth
0: Malenkovich. Weird Earth <laughs> we the, so, so that, <laughs> I
1: apologize now. These are amazing. <laughs>
3: 26,000 years is the precession of the axis. That's the cycle.
1: Oh, right, of the yeah. polar axis. Mm. Yeah, the north
3: celestial axis.
1: So I didn't know this before Joel explained this this past few days, but that we actually have multiple north stars and that the north star changes. The most prominent, the most, the brightest, or the most northerly of the stars changes. The one changes. closest
3: to this like like imaginary north celestial axis. So if right. you just like project out into space from the North Pole. It slowly draws a circle in the sky over 26,000 years. Right. And so it's, it's just lining up with different stars that happen to be in those.
1: I see. Yeah. Which is also amazing because we think about North as this, like, incontrovertible thing, you know. Oh, it's been moving. magnetic north has been moving (laughs) you know right magnetic north is moving but like you think of north as something that is somehow bigger than earth because of course all of earth is organized by it but it's totally like earthbound right Mm -hmm. like yeah so that's just kind of nice but Back to the former question. Yeah, on what time scale do you imagine the average NFT engager, enjoyer, let's say enjoyer, is operating on? Yeah, between three
2: and
3: four seconds. <laughs> I
1: think. They might want to trade their NFT. So yes. it's possible well, that... I, and is it
3: an investment? Isn't it like considered... Are Nifties considered an investment? Like a long-term investment, isn't that kind of... Well, you call Nifties
1: Nifties, is that what you call them?
3: Yes. I call them
2: them Nifties. I'm not going to say non-fungible tokens, except that one time. But I would say that this show that we have up on Foundation, it's called Experimental Models, and a lot of the artists that we brought in, many of them are deep from within the critical digital media art. Spaces where they've been working for eight, nine, ten years, mm-hmm. and in my own life, I wanted to think about how can artists who have been maintaining a practice of experimentation and digital generative art have access to collectors and people who are interested in purchasing their work when they might not have that network mm-hmm. built in, and also to support topical cream, which supports like women, GNC, and non-binary artists mm-hmm. and writers. Just... They started this editor-in-residence program last year and asked me to come on board to like bring my own frame. And so particularly, of course, in this last year, my focus really shifted to how do we maintain an experimental practice over time? And also, how does one learn models of experimentation when you're not necessarily learning it in school? How do you mm-hmm. teach yourself? And so I think what's been interesting in this space is the conversations I've had with the artists who really hesitate to come in because they know... One, there's a huge barrier to entry. In the nifty space. In the nifty space, and I think foundation has been great, but I also think that the pace is so rapid, Mm -hmm. and people's attention spans are split among 50 different things. The kind of curatorial artist relationship, this deep, slow time where you really get to spend a few hours talking about ideas, talking about the practice, talking about the research, is totally flattened. In a lot of crypto nifty spaces and so you know there's not even 10 seconds to read a paragraph Mm -hmm. about what the work is about it's like did it catch me on some neurological level instantly did the forms the lighting the shape the uniqueness the novelty get me instantly Mm -hmm. and it's either that or you you move on you keep scrolling and so yeah how do you see what experimental is when you're in a space that privileges the, the shiny, the smooth, the glossy. Right the aesthetic or like the most aesthetic.
1: There's an aesthetic of experimentation but then yes. the question is is it really experimental or is it actually conforming to what the expectation is of the space and the right. space is, is coded it... in the larger social bodies imaginary as like new novel mm-hmm. future but it's kind of like the way that like new novel future was coded in the 60s and now when you look at like design from the 60s like it looks really dated right?
2: Yeah and I, and I think of course we could look at each of these pieces in terms of their visual experimentation but I think of the research methods that go behind. You're not always able to tell how many hours went into a piece, right?
3: So, like, do you think there's a specific literacy of the digital materiality that's kind of necessary for people to appreciate a nifty? Like, you know, when you see the choreography play set by Sam, mm-hmm. do you think most people looking at that knows how long it took to make that? <laughs> like, is there Can like? Can you also a-
1: describe the piece for our listeners who maybe aren't looking at it? Yeah, it is a 3D model
2: playset by Sam Rolfes, who is, you know, very well known, I would say, in the digital art space, but then also does, you know, VR puppetry and these incredible live performances, and did this cheeky piece of a model of himself basically in front of an algorithmic eye gazing at them and the story that they wrote underneath is about how decritical artists in this space learn to dance before the algorithmic eye. I think to your point it's becoming increasingly hard to tell whether, you know, an algorithm was like handcrafted or the artist curated every single image that went into a machine learning network that then produced the images that form a collection.
3: Mm-hmm. One, one thing and I so, really think is interesting about the Nifty space is that it's a lot of buyers of Niftys are other artists, um, like too, other, other yeah. digital uh-huh. artists. So it's like it kind of reinforces a... An artist for artist aesthetic, like especially if you follow it on Twitter, like I feel like you see a lot of hyping of each other, and then like monetary support, which I feel in the traditional art spaces is is kind of right, yeah. right, far yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> Hopefully the apes evolved to uh, uh, is, H- Homo is... sapiens, and uh, <laughs> at least Neanderthals, who are beautiful uh, cousins, who <laughs> sadly uh, genocided a long time ago, but um, absorbed, yeah. absorbed, absorbed. 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 Yeah. to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I'm four percent. very very high. Um, See, right,
1: living proof. But
0: uh, yeah, hopefully the <laughs> apes evolve a bit and start to actually think about the conversations. Are you, are you optimistic for the space though? Not too early to tell. Mm. It's worth engaging in, obviously, to you.
2: I think what made this show worth it were the conversations with other artists mm. about what it means to be in this space. Mm -hmm. Kit Sun Lee had a piece in the show called Post Post Whole, where her piece is set to start to degrade in a thousand years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the artists were thinking, like, how can I tell the story of my research, you know, site visits to Town in Pakistan, or um, thinking about, you know, one's identity within and legibility within digital space as one is transitioning, which is the case of like Daniel Brathwaite Shirley's piece and this entire game world Shirley has built. I think with all of these pieces, each artist was challenged to think of what, how do I translate my deep critical thinking, this massive research practice into this image? Like, can I actually pin different pieces in this like 10 second loop? So, it can actually be an entry point into my practice for someone who's like, what is going on here? Maybe this is like a little portal in. Right. Yeah. Can you add depth to the space? I think for me, that's always the. Delicious challenge in technological right. spaces. Like, how do I retain some criticality?
1: I mean, there's just so little discourse in this space that is like thinking on any level beyond just like what was the sale price? Because, in some ways, the main valuation is like did it sell at auction? What did it sell for? What did it resell for? Was it What's one eight 5 Was it the floor? The yeah, page. They, yeah have these, sure.
0: uh, they have these projects they launched. They're like, we'll be sweeping the floor every two days like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. the first two weeks. Exactly. Like, is like buying all the lowest priced ones to raise the floor high so that they're more valuable to everyone else. Hmm. Like, uh, right, that's yeah, like there's... the
1: main metric now for like a valuable piece or a successful piece or a piece that has social currency. That's been it. So what do we do um, when we want to front load these images or these files with more, with some kind of surplus beyond just it's four second attention grab.
0: I mean, uh, I mean, as we heard from a recent episode with Hildy Jerry Gagosian, the flip set, the flipocracy, they also. <laughs> So are dominating the art market right now. So this is a wider scale right. issue we're dealing with as creative producers. Well, and in also, general. The images
1: travel as files. I mean, yeah. art travels right. as PDFs or JPEGs or whatever, or a quick web page. So, I mean, I would almost consider it one and the same. The art market and the NFT market mm-hmm. share a lot of dynamics right now.
3: I mean, you could almost see the NFT market being the culmination of the flipocracy of the
0: yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean
3: that that it sort of like lends itself perfectly. Right. ...to okay. this condition of buying, selling, reselling, selling. It's an you know, M-
0: MMORPG right. of the flipocracy.
2: Yeah, that's what I was I was about to say, like I've spent so much time trading gold in MLOs yeah. that I <laughs> just see a continuum, <laughs> continuum from trading gold in WoW, but, yeah. and I see a continuum from that very easily into this.
3: Do you think gamification, how to build criticality into that gamification? Isn't that I think, what I this think, is attempting to do?
2: I think part of it is like just actively producing friction. But,
1: I would say, Nora, I mean, this show has more of an impact on the art world that's maybe not even a part of the NFT zone than it does trying to make a big splash on OpenSea, sorry. Um, but, you know, of course, there are many art worlds, just like the art market never encompassed the entire art world. I mean, Andrea Frazier, I mean, when she sometimes would engage with the market critically, but like so many artists that we love don't really have secondary market sales. And they're incredibly important to the conversations we have to to the way we understand cultures or certain critical discourses over many decades. So I don't know. I mean, in some ways, the goal here isn't to radicalize with foundation. Mm-mm. It's more to just show that this marketplace is open for artists to use and to engage with. Mm-hmm. And to also signal to an art audience that like, this is not some totally taboo place that if you touch you're somehow delegitimized. That's the real sort of value that I find in you having stuck your neck out by curating something in the space Mm.
0: could i add one thing that's related in extension of that and to put it very simply i mean why as a critic and someone with with a critical stance to this space why do you feel it's still worth engaging with rather than taking a more like prohibition stance to it
1: it's not going to be here in twenty seven thousand years so right
2: right right yeah i I definitely Took a lot of time this year to think about the first time I was involved in the space, which was in 2015, wrote a uh, white paper in the newly found Satoshi Nakamoto and to <laughs> describe what blockchain is, what crypto is for Ryzum, along with DeForest Brown, Lars Holdis, and the actual school. And we created this, like... White paper case study, like of the history of crypto and the potential for artists and potential for musicians, and people came in. Matt Dryhurst, a lot of other theorists and thinkers, and were happily and excitingly annotating it. And then I stepped away from the space, and then the resurgence in the last year. I think this relates to something I pay attention to a lot: are rhetorical loops mm. and like loops in conversation when blockchain crypto NFTs come up. It's actually incredible. Like, you can model the rhetorical, like, how it will unfold. Someone will say climate change, and someone will say this, and someone will say you're a moron, and then it's just, you know, it's it's one loop. That is where, like, criticism starts to stagnate. These camps go up, and no one is really speaking to each other. They're fully in this space or fully out, Mm -hmm. which to me replicates the binaries that are embedded within any discussion of tech they're built in. You're either on board for the future, or you're going to be left behind the whole, we're going to make it thing. Not an interesting set of loops. I think what's more interesting is to acknowledge that people can think with a lot of complexity, that one can both engage with the space and know all of the critiques of like how the market works and who will most likely benefit the most and who will probably get shafted the most. And see this space like many others we navigate within capitalism as involved with both profound compromise of our morals and ideals, but then also still asking us how we will move through it.
1: Right. We've been thinking a lot about how in the crypto space it's like, line goes up when criticism is good, when criticism is bad, line goes down. So we mm. don't want line goes down, so let's only be positive. So maybe, can you make this argument as well? It's not not even
0: positive criticism, it's just sheer optimism. sheer
1: optimism. And so, and a lot of people in the crypto space will say, yeah, but you know, a lot of the criticism, I mean, again, we come to this question of time. It's only on like, yeah, you know, we're we're gonna solve it like proof of stake. You're worried about this problem. That's only because you haven't seen what it does at scale. You haven't mm. seen what it does over time. It's a very so, dangerous. Why waiting. are you penny pinching? Why are you concerned about this small concern when you're not looking at the broad? So can you speak both maybe to that?
3: Well, just first, I'd, I'd like to say like what I think is really interesting about decentralized crypto space and why you get so much kind of like gross marketing schemes from people <laughs> mm-hmm. is that like it is as anything. A network based on agreement Mm -hmm. and so you need people to buy in for it to be real right but it's never been done in a way that's been this decentralized and in a way that we can kind of all watch from different positions Mm -hmm. it's usually like an authority who comes in and say well this is real so
2: and I think the to this question of criticism to tie back to what you're saying Joel I mean, got to speak with Matt Dryhurst and DeForest Brown at Unsound about like a month ago and had some amazing conversations, both like reminiscing on time passing and <laughs> also on, you know, their experience in, in this space over the last year. And I think as a critic, you know, you know that criticism is based in love and care. It's like actually my optimism about technology that would want to think about the values that are in the space and what... Right kinds of like technological value systems are being replicated like the we're going to make it. And and I've heard a lot in the DAO space about like coming up with charters and rules of engagement in which we can like acknowledge each other's difference and history. And all of those kinds of like social charters are very interesting. So there's no space where you're starting over from zero. Mm -hmm. But the negativity towards any kind of criticism as though you can't be in a space and also want more from it. I can sense that from a lot of Web3 folks, but I think they're they seem also like largely very exhausted to me. It's like that. So there is more a sort from of, it, I
1: think it's just a yeah. question of like w- in in what direction. I mean, want mm. more typically means like want more perceived value as opposed to value something that would be like a fungible kind of value. Mm. Gains. 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 Yeah, exactly. Want more. gains like gains maxing. Like maxing. Yeah. As opposed to want more meaning like like want some breaks on the gains if it seems to be impinging on like human thriving or yeah. something, mm-hmm. right? So So, I mean, want
0: more is, I guess, also Mm. a subjective question. Hmm. I have two kind of bigger questions, if that's okay. Let's go bigger. (laughs) Uh, Nora, you're writing a book about uh, AI and art. AI, uh, GPT-4, all of these things that's going to be able to emulate our creative works. Writing, imagery, even uh, video. We're already in a time where deliberate deployal of tropes uh, becoming more common. Also, just look at any TV series Mm -hmm. and see how they string you along from episode to episode. There's a lot of uh, tropes at work. We're naturally, as a human network now connected better than ever, are refining our own tropes and devices to deploy. AI is going to do this even more. And I imagine that people might find creativity that resists something that could be. Replicated by AI as an exciting space to be in, and I was thinking maybe there'd be a new kind of data is kind of approach of something nonsensical, non sequitur, kind of hard to parse, something that would evade AI's understanding. But then I think that right, AI can recuperate anything that is meant to. Short circuit it, right? I mean, do you imagine in this future where AI could really emulate any form of human creativity? I mean, also, AI inherently can be very wonky, depending on how you tune it. I mean, we've seen hilarious things generated by GPT-3, total like Mitch Hedberg-style non sequiturs. So, I, I wonder how you imagine, or if it is even possible, for there to be an aesthetic space of resistance of what AI is capable of.
2: Mm. That's an amazing question. I think I could answer in like a couple of parts. The first is that if you are writing with or alongside or in relation to something that can learn from all of your patterns, predict the kinds of ticks or stylistic like innovations you have had and might have like mm-hmm. what does it mean to write with your mirror and how do you how do you embrace as a writer like the stuff that gpt3 does and that people are saying gpt4 will do mm-hmm. all of it i'm just thrilled by because one the more it can mirror the feeling of something writing intentionally the more that i take its world seriously mm-hmm. and so for a long time i think with a lot of generated writing because the tell was it not being human one would dismiss it and be like, oh, that doesn't read as. Mm-hmm. What if the like paradigm is not something human-like or something a human would write, but instead this is another kind of intelligence that's writing mm-hmm. and what kind of world is it offering me? What kind of strange imagery is, you know, mm-hmm. turns of phrase and weird ways of putting language together because it's not putting language together the way we are writing. Right, it's right. placing patterns. It's doing the most statistically probable likely prediction of the next word and so that's a different logic and so it does read sometimes like with Shadberg it's Sometimes it reads like it's exactly what it is. It's a system trying to learn patterns of what you most likely will say next. So it's a constant mirror to like how predictable am I, how uh, unique is my language, and maybe I'm like actually very predictable in how I write. Or maybe this writer who is an experimental writer actually has like a beautiful system that can be predicted and learned from. So I think we're entering the space of like correlation-based mm-hmm work, so Mm -hmm. to write like, to paint like, to think like Mm -hmm. uh, and then what does it mean to get to linger in the space of like something rather than
1: a perfect replication of. I love that. I mean, I also imagine like.
0: the human always would have the role as the discriminator, and the AI mm-hmm. could be the generator. And so maybe like Virgil Abloh, rest in peace. Uh, the partnership is the AI generator and the, the human, human is discriminator, the aggregator. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you're you're the selector, the aggregator the selector. of what an AI could infinitely generate in a particular mode. Well,
2: yeah. maybe on the artistic side, that's. I mean, when I'm thinking about art, writing, culture, that that's the where my optimist side comes in and then the critical part of this book or the criticism part of this book is as lovers of art or creative work you know if it is harder and harder to differentiate between or even to like narrate like how much is the algorithm and how much was the artist or just like our ability to navigate an algorithmic visual culture like what kind of patterns are we starting to be trained on and train ourselves in um, and how that affects critical language is, I think, where I'm really focused. Mm-hmm. So like, when I work with a artist who is training their own machine learning algorithm to learn from a million film images, like, as a critic, you can look at the output of the neural network that they train. Or what if you look at the set of 500,000 images and they send you 17 zip files with those mm-hmm. images? Or you find some sort of way to look at all of them at once. How do you assess... original input data set. Mm -hmm. What are the words you have for 200,000 images that you look at over the course of a week? Is it like mood? Is it the atmosphere? Is Uh it actually, do you feel yourself starting to pick up patterns of how the machine is learning by looking at the original data set? So we're learning to think one across like countless different contexts, but then also along time scales that we're not cognitively really trained for, Mm -hmm. but we're still, your brain will still do the work to try and keep up. It's constantly iterative Improving pattern recognition.
1: You had such a good way yesterday of saying, like, the machine doesn't see, it's not even really vision. It's more like finding relationships and categories and arranging, organizing. But then what do you do once you have those categories?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the Theo Anthony piece that we were oh, yeah. looking at yesterday, they had a short piece from a film in which they were looking at the moving time data set where you're looking at millions of images of like right. three second videos. We were watching this poetic segment that they made where you feel yourself trying to figure out what kinds of patterns a machine is reading. Mm-hmm. So even if you are not trained in writing algorithms or you've never coded, like there are ways that we through our own pattern recognition try to like understand the seeing, thinking, processing of other intelligences. And mm-hmm. I think we've lived with like partial knowledge about things we don't know and beings we don't know like through history like we had you know, river gods and river spirits, as like Peli would describe, all sorts of like phantom beings. And we still have all kinds of phantom beings that we like live with that are not human, but are more like humanoid. Mm-hmm. And so I think the way we conceptualize and think of AI now is as this like other thing that is living and doing and processing and creating in a way I'm that we can that. recognize, but it's not human. And I think there's a shift towards like acknowledging that, okay, now we've moved past the anthropocentric RoboCop Terminator conversation into like okay this thing is still here right at the edge of our limits, right consciousness.
1: It's mm-hmm. true we've so, always had those kinds of deities as mm-hmm. so a practice that humans have engaged with you know since prehistoric times.
2: And I think we involve in relation to it, like yeah. we involve in relation to like what am I in relation to this thing and what makes mm-hmm. me human in relation to this thing, and so totally. it's always in relation to mm-hmm. rather than.
0: Yeah. In, I mean in polytheistic beliefs the gods were always aggregative mm-hmm. or like these logics autonomous logics apply to certain archetypical or common patterns that mm-hmm. they witnessed in their world especially things they didn't They're have agency, agency over mm-hmm.
1: I have to say sitting beneath this mountain here on Lake Geneva and wondering when the mountain's going to reveal itself or not or when the gods are going to lift the clouds or when we'll see <laughs> snow or not Jeez. you do you do yeah. feel like there's some there's this massive power that I can have no bearing over whatsoever Mm -hmm. and trying to understand its patterns and its rhythms. Mm.
0: But
3: it's really the power of time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I had a quick question for you, Carly, but what was Dada reacting against?
1: Oh, I mean, so many things. I think in part data because data emerges like around World War One, right? And on the one hand, there's the chaos of industrialization and that reorganizing value systems. And on the other, the sheer horrors of World War One mm. and just the total destruction of human life um, and machines destroying human life. So uh, that, and then also a globalism. So suddenly, you have all these different cultural logics that are trying to find a shared language um, necessary for global capital, but also necessary for cultures that have been displaced, countries that are merging into new kinds of nation states. I mean, that is a very broad stroke um, definition. I'm sure there's an art historian out there who has something more precise, but that's
0: what I would say. So are we primed for a uh, neo-Dataism? Or did we pass the moment?
1: I mean, yeah, but I think there's always some element of the absurd that's Mm -hmm. like always flickering somewhere. Particularly Um, in the online. Yeah, particularly in the online. I mean, the weird thing is now is that the absurdist things that you see in an NFT space they feel so canned they don't feel experimental I mean when you had the kind of I always say it wrong glossos- oh, glossolalia. Glossolalia. Glossolalia of like Baal like with mm. his language experiments that felt meaningful because it was like a non-language that everybody could share because it was like an absurdist non-language that doesn't feel surprising today I mean those kinds of technological also Dada was very interested in the technological there before. yeah
3: I mean I would just like to add to that like the Dada's are really interested in the materiality of consciousness And like that, that kind of grew into like surrealism. That was probably the line. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And you could see that now in the digital space, I think, because you're dealing with the materiality of this digital presence. Yeah. Which we, I think, we're ultimately interested in, like, what does this mean for our consciousness? What does this mean for like a future digital consciousness? Mm -hmm. And maybe that it does have similarities mm. with That's the true. Dadaist imperative you know i think back then it was about more like breaking down the consciousness that led up to this world war 1 sk- mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. rupture this is like great rupture of society but now it's more like okay the ruptures happened but like i also don't know what's going on so i need to like
2: yeah kind of do yeah. some searching i think also when i think of a lot of the work in this space i struggle because one can't always recognize what methods are experimental like in the time you're in Right. Like, a lot of these things, like, reveal themselves later as, like, language, like, shapes mm-hmm. more. And so it's important is that artists, like, describe what experimentalism means to them mm-hmm. in this space because it's such a loaded word with so much history and John Cage and right. Fluxus. Yeah. And, but that's a 50-year-old reference, right. right? And the methods that were algorithmic then, like, you can't talk about Lewitt as an algorithmic artist, mm-hmm. but what it means now is you are embedded within software, embedded within these tools, and you're mastering them, but you're also trying to play with them as much as possible while acknowledging the presets and default of design. And so, like, our context is totally different, so making the space is different.
1: That's 100% true. I mean, you think about, like, Dan Graham is a cybernetic artist, and the experiments he was doing with mirrors and sound and video feedback loops in the 1960s, that's way different than when you have algorithms organizing your government Mm -hmm. according to these cybernetic systems. And they're yes. happening rapidly at scale with major political implications, yes. right? Like, and so I think the
2: ideal of you know artists like handcrafting the the system within yeah. a system that is like algorithmically nudging certain images to the top of your mm-hmm. feed certain people certain behaviors. practices certain behaviors it's a totally different context so you have an artist now who are working with full knowledge of this other system around pushing and pulling and have their own you know yeah. lives and resources and futures to, to think about so it's i think it's a much more complex interdependent yeah try sort to of keep another podcast. Yeah, no, great. Um, I new mean, models,
1: interdependence. Say yeah. it all the time. New <laughs> <Your> models, interdependence. <laughs> Just keep saying those words again and again, hypnotize. No, but I mean, we mm. always say it too, but like the new VIP is like above the API and like if your artwork is able to launch you above the API, then somehow it has agency. It can mm. be like this effective lever. Mm-hmm. But like that was not even really a concept in when Solowit was making his work, that, that you would have a platform that mm-hmm. would control your world and that yes. the algorithm that you were working with like none of those concepts were in and, place at that time
3: yes
2: and you're writing thinking podcasting making work in a space that privileges certain voices over right. others and that's built in it's so built in. so right. yeah. the strategies that different people are going to use within that space are going to be totally, totally different. different and so yeah. this idea of like a pure a pure argument or a pure position is absurd yeah One could argue,
0: Um, because because the context
2: is totally different based on who we are, and that's actually why we need to think of who we are in these spaces, context, race, history,
3: class, oh, gender, all of yeah. these things. They are... I think what you said before, like, it's all about relation. Bound. is mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's it. Like, if you're a critical artist, you're just trying to find the edges mm-hmm. and you're trying to, like, suss out, okay, how these relationships inform each mm-hmm. other so that hopefully we all can make more informed choices and... Right,
1: mm. which is why I get so bored when someone's like, look at my experimental image and you're like, congratulations, you have access to some kind of cool technology, but experimental on what valence? Like, it's not an experimental that actually like shows us how these structures contain us Mm -hmm. like I don't I mean I not that I don't care people make beautiful images and that's also fine it's a pursuit that's also fine but don't sell it to me as truly experimental sell it to me as expressionistic really expensive paintings sell all the time that are expressionistic but like experimental on what valence Mm -hmm. and I just get frustrated when this language is used like I'm an AI artist and I'm working with you know Mm -hmm. you're like okay but like to do what To open up what Mm -hmm. kind of spaces? To Mm -hmm. reveal what? Mm -hmm. To threaten what?
3: Fair.
2: damn yes. <laughs> <laughs> I it's a creation
0: of it's essentially an advertisement for a, a bespoke tool
1: it is mm-hmm. I mean really that's honestly what it is mm-hmm. and, and you better believe that whatever company enabled that is going to put that artist mm-hmm. in their shareholders deck but well, the artist
0: mm-hmm. is the tool maker right the but artist the, is the tool maker but in that the case. terms get in digital art can get kind of fuzzy like what's a tool maker and what's an artist it's both usually right. it used, right. to, it used right. to
3: be like a, a company would make a tool sell it to artists so the artists could use it, and then they say, "Like, look, look how useful this is." Right. And then it could be standardized and brought into like an in- industrial service, right. basically. Right.
2: Right. Going back to the GPT three stuff, like some of the writing that GPT three is making, the novels it's writing, like the prose is we were taught at what is as close to experimental as one can think. Right. Like, so a lot of modernist experimentation or surrealist experimentation in right. prose, or like really experimental language poets, like some of the stuff reads that way. Right. And right. Right. So I you know I also then start to tip because I'm like oh I'm learning from this yeah. and this is really interesting this will make me a better writer right because whether it's uh, an ego driven thing of like wanting to be more unique or wanting my writing to be better than this thing not better but right. More experimental than the experimental <laughs> AI. Like is that is actually like an interesting kind of competitive push or something or a catalyst. Mm-hmm. Like I think just in terms of like if that's what you want, your pros to do interesting, strange, wild things, then it's actually a great like training ground. Mm-hmm. It's like this thing is doing better than me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it is
0: interesting Playing chess
2: too. Playing chess, exactly.
0: I mean, it's yeah. interesting to think too, like James Joyce, Finnegan's Wake, or something. I mean, essentially, he got himself into a, a frame of, mm-hmm. of this very just associative pattern recognition, mm-hmm. proximate mm-hmm. syllables that sound close to each mm-hmm. other with meaning that maybe works in some kind of you almost think of it as a logic of a rudimentary AI yeah. that's mm-hmm. learning how yeah. to deploy language. It's like GPT JJ.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Against Wake's case, or Beckett, or a lot of these writers, they were yeah, they were like their own predictive mm. algorithmic like writing system, and then writing is a system, right? Right, and so the parallels and metaphors maybe this also to...
1: touches on another part of your work. I know we need to wrap up soon because we have to catch a train. Yes, but um, but I mean, you've also written on color and underscoring the point that color happens in the eye, not in mm-hmm. the object. It's right. It's like mm-hmm. how the eye perceives it. So maybe also experimentation a bit happens in the mind of the perceiver where. Certain mm-hmm. things can trigger certain thought patterns to you because of mm-hmm. where you are, what else you're looking at, mm-hmm. or what else you're reading, and that's also legitimate. So if it's not okay. necessarily like hacking its way through the meta structures, mm-hmm. if it's able to trigger something in in the mind of the perceiver that that does unlock mm-hmm. a system for you, get mm-hmm. you out of your current model, then that's mm-hmm. also an effective form of experimentation.
3: Well said. That's the ideal, yeah. right?
1: That's the ideal. Yeah. Right, right, right. Amazing. I mean, your work just cracked me out of my time scope. Yeah. <laughs> thinking that this rock that you're installing that points to the North Star is going to be here for 27,000 years, at least, maybe. Uh, and it's going to... It's hope. To hope. <laughs> and, and it seems very simple. You put mm-hmm. a rock in a place with a large stick hanging out of it. It seems incredibly simple, and yet it has the capacity to shift the way that we think about timescales, geolocation, Orientation with the universe and our own position mm-hmm. in relation to that. So
0: I was I was going to ask about free will and determinism, but I'll skip it. Save we can leave it for leave the next you. round. Next yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Anyway, thank you, Joel, and thank you, Nora, for spending your time and sharing your thoughts with us and, and for, inviting us and here and bringing us of here. Of yes, you get a friend. who <laughs> can bring you to Switzerland. You can yeah. You yeah. bring you to Switzerland. My God, to find out more about what Nora uh, yes. and Joel are doing, I don't know if you want to say. Hi.
3: I mean, I have a, I have a website, Joel Kinnan O e l k u e n n e n
1: And Nora, if I don't know what information you can tell us about the upcoming book, maybe at least some of your recent publications.
2: Yeah, sure. I have a piece in art form coming out on Atonal in the February issue. And these books will be emerging in the next year and year and a half. Okay. The AI art book is through Lund Humphreys, the New Directions in Contemporary Art series. And the second book is through Strange Attractor Press, and it's called
1: Tracing Symbols. Fantastic. Well, Nora and Joel, thank you again. And uh,
0: thank you. Yeah. Ciao.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Ciao. ciao. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast, and thank you, Nora and Joel, for joining us and inviting us to visit you in Switzerland. Be sure to check out the links to their work in the notes. We'd also like to thank the Lebec Artist Residence for hosting us and all of the beautiful, talented artists and musicians we met there and got to spend some quality time with. Carly, Dan, and I are currently all in the USA for the holidays, but we just recorded a new topsoil with a special guest from the Discord, and it will be coming soon. The pandemic is, of course, unceasing, and Omicron is seriously disrupting our ability to be together during the time when we should be doing just that. We hope all of you stay safe while still finding a way to be close to those you love. We and the rest of the New Models community are always just a DM away if you need us, and we're sending hope and positive cascades your direction. Happy Holidays, and see you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Mixing
3: and music by low internet. To join New Models, visit patreon.com
0: slash newmodels.